Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. I've been running for a few years now and have the privilege of meeting many incredible runners on my travels all across the country. This podcast is intended to share those amazing conversations. Welcome back. I am here in Cambridge, Massachusetts with Caitlin Goodman. Caitlin, thanks for joining in today. Thanks for having me. For sure. We're doing another podcast with an Olympic trials runner. So thanks for uh, thanks for popping on today. Yeah. Uh, first question, who is Caitlin? Who is Caitlin? Um, I wear many hats. Uh, I'm a dog mom. <laughs> um, very important. Very important. Um, I'm a pro runner for uh, the Boston Athletic Association and Adidas. I am a running coach at Training Joyfully. I uh, do some public health consulting. I have my MPH in public health. And uh, yeah, I I love ice cream. That, that's a good... <laughs> that's who I am. Nice. I love it. Um, so... I love ice cream. That's a good. That's a good close to that to that <laughs> answer there. Um, okay, cool. So you you do a whole bunch of different things, and one of those things is running at a professional level. And you've got a a big race coming up in a couple of weeks. I do. Let's dive right into that. Yeah. So Atlanta. Um, what I think is super cool about you is that you've qualified for the trials in. The so five thousand, ten thousand, and the marathon. So what's what's that like? You know that um, in twenty sixteen to compete in all three events was awesome. I did not actually have a great marathon trials in twenty sixteen. Um, I don't think very many people did. <laughs> yeah, B- bad memories <laughs> from LA. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to be able to have the chance to come back on the track and kind of re- redeem myself, um, that was you know really awesome to have that opportunity. Um, the 10 K is my favorite event. And so to have finally qualified in the 10, which has been my goal for many years, that was really special. And then the 5 K was just kind of this like icing on the cake. We weren't shooting for it, but I happened to have a time that got me in and you know, all the focus had been on the 10. And so just to have another chance to go back out there and really like have some fun and mix it up. Um, it was a, it was really awesome. Cool. And so what are the lessons that you learned from LA and and uh, what you did in 2016 that you're you're carrying forward to 2020 here? Yeah, a lot of lessons from LA. Um, you know, I think that the part that I was disappointed in myself was how my mental game went once things went south. Um, I felt like I had prepared physically really well. It was like my best build up to date. And I thought that I was prepared to handle anything. And then I obviously was not prepared for the heat and just, you know, the suffer fest that it was out right. there. And and so when things got hard, I wasn't really proud of how how I approached the race mentally. And so 
ever since then, you know, into the 2016 track trials and and now, you know, and beyond, it's just really, I really want to challenge myself that when things aren't going my way, whether you are, you know, dry heaving because it's, you know, 80 something degrees or like I had some stomach issues in New York, you know, whenever obstacle comes your way, just like really approaching, um, having a mindset of, you know, what can I do? Not a defeatist mindset. And I, I bring that to training, you know, if, if it's snowing, you know, the weather's not going your way or, you know, you're having a fueling issue or something in life is going on. That's really challenging. That's impacting your performance. Um, you know, you, you control your attitude and your mental game. And, um, I think if you can have a positive attitude and focus on what you can control, that's how you're able to get the most out of yourself from a performance perspective. I love it. Devin Yanko calls it working the problem. And I think it's, I think it's such a good way to look at it. So what do you do in that moment when you've acknowledged you have a problem or you (laughs) have an acute issue? Yeah. So I worked with a sports psychologist, um, Ro McGettigan. She wrote the Believe I Am training journal. Yeah. She's my neighbor in Providence. Um, and she does some, uh, you know, sports psych work. And so she really encouraged me to take a body scan and say, okay, like my stomach has gone south and I have 10 more miles in the marathon. You know, that doesn't feel good. But what does feel good? Like probably your legs are still feeling great. Your lungs are still doing well. So kind of instead of focusing on like, oh, my stomach, my stomach, you know, focus on something else that's feeling good and channel your energy there and, you know, take stock of what, you know, you have still in your arsenal to compete with and um, don't focus on the, the thing you've already lost. Yeah, the problem. <laughs> I, I think that's great. So I, I read a book called Mind Gym. And mm-hmm. um, one of the points it makes is like a very simple one. Mm-hmm. You can't focus on two things at once. You can focus on yeah. bad, something bad, or you can focus mm-hmm. on something good. So I think there's something to be said for exactly what you said there. Like take stock in what's working and mm-hmm. shift the focus there. Totally. And like really focus on what you can control. Like I think that's, you know, runners, we tend to be rather type A. And when something's out of our control, that can feel really scary and, you know, disconcerting. It's not going to my race plan. (laughs) And so, you know, really being able to like think on your feet and, and I, like I tell the athletes that I coach, it's like, we do this in our jobs every day, you know, the folks who I'm coaching and, you know, I remind myself, like I would get really anxious for races sometimes. And I was like, well, just approach this like you would like a presentation in grad school. I was like, I'm good at grad school. Wait, oh, I'm good at running too, you know? Like give yourself a little pep yeah. talk and, you know, don't don't get so anxious about that. Focus on what you can control and remind yourself that you can do hard things and um, yeah, make, makes, makes the nerves go away, I guess. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so Training Joyfully, that's the name of your coaching yeah. business. Yeah. Uh, how did that name come about? So my blog and my website is called Running Joyfully. And when I added a coaching component, um, I just kind of, Ah, well, now I'm training people, so right. we're going to call it training joyfully. But the real origin of running joyfully, um, I totally like stole it from my dad. <laughs> He's a high school cross country coach out in California. Been coaching for decades now, and um, he out always, in Davis, right? Yes, Davis, California, my hometown. home of the the famous In and Out on the way to Tahoe. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes, that is the exit you have to take. Yes. It's also home to many bike lanes, which you'll, I know you'll appreciate. <laughs> yes. Normally when I'm going out that way, I'm in a car, but... <laughs> but no one's going to park in the bike lane that's, in Davis. Oh, that's good to know. Oh, yeah. Bike lanes are respected. Unlike, um, unlike here in Brookline. Right. <laughs> but um, running joyfully. So my dad would tell all his high school athletes, we'd go on this 
run at cross country camp up at Donner Lake and we're overlooking the lake and we're in the mountains and it's like beautiful and amazing. We're running with our teammates and he'd tell all of us, you know, when we got up to the top of the mountain to remind ourselves that we're the luckiest kids alive to be out here and to run with joy. And, you know, that really spoke to me, you know, it's spoken to the thousands of athletes he's worked, worked with. And so when I decided to run post-collegiately, that was the name of my blog running joyfully in San Francisco at the time and, you know, <laughs> bounced around a little bit, but running joyfully has been the, the common thread. Awesome. And how do you bring that to what you, what you do out there on the roads? You know, I think, um, for me, it really means running with an attitude of gratitude for what my body can do. Um, you know, I've, I've had some injuries in the last year and a half. And so I've really had to like double down on that running joyfully piece yeah. because, there were many times it was not very joyful. Do you look retrospectively ab uh, at like what you've done in the past and, and have gratitude around like my body has allowed me to do this. It's currently injured. Um, when I was injured. Yeah. I don't know if I was quite in the headspace to like yeah. be able to, you know, reflect with that gratitude. But like now that I'm healthy again, right. I just like you remember <laughs> those dark injured times. Right. I know, you know, you can relate to that. Yes. And so, um, so now I'm just, you know, grateful for whatever my body will give me any, any time out there. But, but it's, it's more than that too, right? It's like, it's kind of, uh, for me, you're, you're out, whether it's, you know, an urban run or you're, you know, running in trails, you're, you're outside, you're stepping away from whatever, you know, issues you have, of, you know, going on at home, whatever stressors you've got at work. Um, this is your time. And so really kind of like running in the moment, being present, having an element of mindfulness to it and trying to bring that like childlike joy almost to your run, you know, and before running was like about specific splits right. and tempo pace. And, you know, we could, we could make running stressful if we want to. Right. So try to like go back to like, why did we do this in the first place? Oh, this is really awesome to go run for an hour with my friends outside. Beautiful day. Yeah. So run for an hour with your friends. Yeah. Um, Best part of the day. Yes. You have a lot of awesome training partners here in Boston. And yeah. I see you all out there on the marathon course flying around and <laughs> Trying. You know, running six minute pace and making it look so easy. Um, how, what, what's that like? What's it like training with a group like that, that everybody is so high performing where, where everyone is so high performing and, and maybe let's back up and talk about BAA and, yeah. and joining that uh, team. Um, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, so I joined in the summer of 2018 and um, really was kind of seeking to have more training partners that were my speed. Um, I had, you know, I, I still live in Providence um, and I had been running a bit with Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson, but Emily had just kind of taken off and uh, the, the days of running with them <laughs> were no more. <laughs> you need a little more in your shoes. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <laughs> um, no, and they're, they're spending a lot of time in Arizona now, right. too. Um, so I was really looking, you know, for, for what I wanted to do in 2020, how was I going to make that next jump? And so in 2018, it seemed, um, like a really good opportunity and, and the right fit. Um, at the time, um, Katie Newton was on the team and she and I had been doing a ton of races together, even though we weren't teammates yet. And, you know, but it, we had that teammate like right. relationship and I was like, I really want to train with Katie. Um, and so, you know, got into talks with the BAA and it was a good fit uh, for both of us. And um, yeah, it was great. And that connected me, you know, to a whole host of really talented folks and and just in Boston in general, too. The running community is so yeah. fantastic. 
I knew um, Allie and Michaela Hackett before the BAA. They're from Rhode Island. Right. Um, but, you know, to be able to, you know, be doing marathon build up stuff with them. And, um, you know, I think Boston does a really great job, too, of like, it doesn't really matter what team you're on. Yeah. It's just, are you training for something and you have a big goal? Hey, you want to meet up and run? And, yeah. you know, everyone's out in the marathon course, no matter who you're running for. Yeah, it's so cool to see all the different teams working out together at Harvard or on the marathon course. Yeah. Um, so were you out in Flagstaff a few weeks ago? So I actually didn't go to Flag. Um, since I'm the only person on the high performance team who was doing the marathon trials, um, my coach and I talked about it. And like the timing of the trip was right as we were hitting some big workouts. Right. And just like the time it takes to adjust to altitude, right. um, it just like didn't quite fit with the, the marathon stuff. Great for the track folks. Right. Um, but, you know, there's no better place to train for the hills in Atlanta than Boston Marathon course. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I've been on the course like almost every weekend and a uh, lot, lot of heartbreak hills. <laughs> yes. Um, what's your favorite stretch of the Boston Marathon? So my favorite place to spectate is actually right as you go over 95. It's like right before the, like the Newton Hills. 16? Yeah, right around Oh my 16. God, that's my least favorite place in the whole course. Which is why <laughs> I want to cheer there because people need yeah. cheers there. Um, you know, you're like just getting into the hills and you're kind of like, yeah. oh man, it's about to get real hard, <laughs> real fast. <laughs> I did a race, a course preview of the last 16 miles um, or the last 13 miles, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and as I come down the hill out of out of Wellesley and you get into you get into the that overpass I believe the commentary was this part fucking sucks <laughs> and there's no way around it like I'm just gonna give it to you straight like mm -hmm. it sucks um well it's, brutal. it's awesome that you're out there because otherwise it sucks <laughs> um that's cool yeah so you mentioned that you got your master's in, um, in public health yeah let's talk about that yeah um, so I got my master's in public health. Um, I started the fall of 2016. So basically after the Olympic cycle, mm -hmm. um, after the trials, I had deferred a year actually. And I was like, all right, trials have come and gone. Right. Did, didn't make it to Rio. Time to go to grad school. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, did two years at Brown, um, with a focus on physical activity promotion and, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. I love school. Um, it was, yeah, I, contemplated the PhD, but that, that might be too much school for me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just had a really great experience. Um, got to do some research around physical activity promotion in South Africa, which was like this, you know, awesome research on one hand and then amazing running on the other <laughs> hand. <laughs> Partially why I went there. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. And I graduated in 2018. So what were some of the what were some of the projects you were working on? So my particular focus was around obesity-related chronic disease, mm -hmm. so diabetes, hypertension, and looking at what are barriers to people dealing with those chronic diseases, um, and then also facilitators. Right. We don't just want to look at, you know, glass half empty, right. but what are things that people are doing to manage their disease um, that's, that's really helpful, whether that's social support or, you know, something in the community that's supporting them, and then how can we replicate what's working in other communities. So I got to do that in South Africa in a township um, outside of Cape Town. Um, you know, historically, you know, a very under-resourced community from the vestiges of apartheid and um, just, you know, a very under-resourced is the best way to, to yeah. frame it. And um, how, how are these women dealing with, um, you know, very younger women um, 
you know, to have such severe diabetes and hypertension, what are they doing um, to be able to manage their disease? And, uh, you know, and what, what were they doing? So social support was like the, the big piece yeah. um, to be able to engage in physical activity in that community. It's not very safe to be active. Right. It's not um, culturally you know, appropriate for women to be wearing pants. Um, once you have gotten married, you're generally wearing dresses or skirts. And even just like not having pants to exercise in was a barrier. Hmm. You weren't allowed to go to the park. The security wow. guards at the park would kick them out if they weren't wearing like gym shoes and pants. I was shocked to hear that. Um, my wow. sponsor at the time actually donated pants and exercise uh, so gear cool. for, for the women. Um, and, but yeah, the, having another woman who was going to, they, they wanted to go gym, as they said, we're gymming. If yeah. you wanted to go to the gym, um, you know, together, that was like a big piece. And I, I totally related to that, right? It's snowing, it's raining, you don't want yeah, to get out the door. Yeah, but you got a teammate, a friend, and that gets you out the door, gets the job done. Cool. Can any of what you learned in South Africa be applied to here in the States? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the parallels in terms of what, um, what, what barriers, uh, people are facing, um, you know, when, you know, your economic status is directly impacting your ability to buy healthy food, right. your ability to have time right. to go exercise, you know, or, or how many jobs are you working? You know, um, I think those, those are cross-cultural and, uh, you know, very applicable to, to communities here in the U S um, that are, you know, resource challenged. And so, um, yeah, that, that was my hope, uh, to do something with my thesis. Yeah. Of course, like most, you know, graduate theses, it's sitting on a shelf somewhere <laughs> and <laughs> hasn't so turned into anything. Was but. communication, research and and communication a part of um the educational process like how how to communicate it um that would have been like a second phase yeah. so i was really it was it was um, a qualitative study so i was gathering all of these personal accounts mm -hmm. through focus groups and interviews and then ideally what someone would do with this research is then translate it, yeah. that into um you know into an intervention right and that that might have then a communication piece in the community, but, um, that was probably a good PhD project, <laughs> but I didn't do the PhD. Got so, it. so the reason I ask is a few weeks ago, um, at inside tracker, we posted something about mm -hmm. obesity on Instagram mm -hmm. and there was a little bit of backlash and some dissenting opinions. And we come at it from a very scientific approach yeah. with almost no emotion, probably too little emotion mm -hmm. tied to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, it caused for a pretty interesting discussion internally coming from the top. So our CEO said, mm -hmm. Whoa, now let's talk about this. And yeah. you know, that's not how we want to be presenting our, our, uh, our, not our stance, but our position on it. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're humans, everybody's human. We're scientists, but mm -hmm. we're humans. Um, so how do you, how do you think we can better we as in like americans mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how do we better communicate the information around obesity while also acknowledging we have the health at any size movement we have people who are saying you know you don't need to you know be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um have you know get your bmi down things like that yeah. um there are so many different pieces at play how do you how do you take the science and turn that into 
something that's helpful. You're coming with the hard questions, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I these these are these are like tough questions exactly yeah. that we would you know talk about in grad school. So I think societally we we struggle with um, you know h- how you're framing people and 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 judging people based on their weight right. and you know that's that's not an okay way to right, right. be be talking about you know anyone. Uh, and I think sometimes we fail to think about the social determinants of health. We look at obesity as this is an individual problem that lies with the individual. Right. That's wrong. We know that from science that right. social determinants of health, you know, where you live, there's literally like by your zip code right. that predispose like risk factors yeah. for your health. Um, and, you know, we we look at so many different variables that come into play. And I think it's, you know, there, there's so many levels that we fail to think about sometimes in the communication piece. So when we think about where to intervene for obesity and obesity-related chronic disease, I really want to move upstream yeah. and, like, look at our food system right. and how much it costs to purchase a healthy salad versus the dollar menu at McDonald's right. or look at the cost of sugar-sweetened beverages versus, you know a healthier beverage. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that, that kind of removes any sort of individual decision-making. If you, if you go far enough up right. the chain, right. Um, how do we communicate that, uh, to policymakers, to individuals? That's really hard. We, we would both be rich if we knew the answer. to that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, with, with any public health problem, whether we're talking about the opioid epidemic or, obesity or gun violence it's just being really sensitive and like you said we're all human and just making sure that our communication has uh, a focus on you know we're all human no no one's doing anything you know no, we're not robots yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. cool um let's jump back over to running for a bit yeah yeah um, nerding out on public health <laughs> no it's great um so i think that some of the feedback i've got on this podcast is that people enjoy hearing about you know what's going on behind the scenes or what's yeah. what people do outside of running and and it's super cool when we can dive into something like this and yeah. and hear about um, you know I, I was reading a piece from Wazelle on Ali Kiefer mm-hmm. and and the, there was a question that said um, what do you tell people when they ask what you do and she says I have a flexible job because she doesn't like talking about it. she likes talking yeah. about the other things that mm-hmm. that she does in her life and there are so many um, so many people that are just seem one dimensional, but, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're not. And so I love, I love when we can, you know, pull those stories out and, and, um, and pull that information out and talk about something like this that you know, totally. impacts tons of people, but back over to running. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So well, here, I'll add one thing on sure. that. So I just listened to Lauren Fleshman on the ritual podcast yep. and I really loved how she was talking about from her coaching. She really focuses on like the whole person. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, kudos to Allie for, for saying that and Wazelle and cause I think we are so often just typecast as right. like, we're just running and then we're chilling in our Normatex and then we're having our smoothie or right. whatever. And that's like our whole day. And then what happens when you're injured? Right. Well, I mean, I, I super struggled with that. Yeah. Right. I, I adopted a dog and I didn't even like dogs. <laughs> I mean, I, I do like now. Dogs now. I love dogs now. Nice. Obsessed. But, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think I, really thrive when 
I focus on that whole personhood and mm-hmm. I really looked up to Lauren, still look up to Lauren as a, you know, a mentor and a role model because, yeah. you know, she's running picky bars and she's writing books and, you know, Doing retreats and, and, and running really fast. Yeah. And so I think um, that wasn't always like supported in, in some of the situations I was in. And um, I, you know, I think I actually really do my best. Like I ran, my 10k PR going to grad school and yeah. coaching runners. And so I think we do a disservice sometimes to be like, Oh, we're just, I'm just professional a runner. runners. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, my coach, David Roche said yeah. something recently or not recently. It was a while ago. Um, and I wish I could get the quote exactly as he said it, but it was something along the lines of like, never sacrifice life for running. Totally. And if you're ever making a decision of should I do this or that and running is is the determining factor, it's time to take a step back and understand and and reevaluate, you know, where you're at. And I think that pendulum swings in the wrong way too far sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. And you need to take a look at where you're at sometimes and, and understand that. And sometimes you can choose to let it swing one way or another and sometimes totally. you can't. Um, and to and be it's successful, like, forced on you. Yeah. like sometimes you gotta, you know, ask my husband, it is all Olympic trials marathon right, right now. And like probably not super fun for him because every weekend's about a long run, right. <laughs> but a longer, long run too. Yes. And longer and harder. And, and then I'm useless for the rest of the day, <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, you know, and then there's time, like we're going on vacation right after the marathon. Right. And so, you know, there's, I like the pendulum with yeah. ebb and flow and, you know, there's there's times to be all in and all focused, and then there's times where you got to be a person a little Definitely. bit. <laughs> so, balance is something I talk a lot on this, talk about a lot on this podcast, yeah. and it's fascinating because the majority of people are elite or professional athletes, and so it's someone who has done well at something mm-hmm. to get where they're where they're at today. Yeah, and and so you see these commonalities of of what it takes to be a high performer, and and what's been fascinating. Over, I've done fifty-five podcasts yeah, now, and so many of them. Yeah, and, I can't listen to them all. Like, <laughs> I can't keep up. <laughs> and the the commonality is that it's you you have to appreciate the the ins and outs and the day to day, and it's never a single focus. It's never just the marathon. It's never mm-hmm. just the marathon trials. It's never just the you know whatever the tangible outcome is but mm-hmm. it's the process and yeah. gratitude and enjoyment totally. and then the other piece is is understanding that you can't do everything and you can't <laughs> like Magda Boulay said it best uh, probably episode 10 or something like that and she said i'm not balanced but what what is important to me is at the end of the day if i come home and i can look at my son in the eyes or i look at my husband and say you know, today was a good day. Um, her husband's happy. Her son's happy. Her dog is happy. <laughs> she did her thing at work and her employees are happy. Things like that. Those are the boxes that she checks on a daily basis mm-hmm. and everything else is, you know, gravy. Yeah. Or, you know, add running into that as well. But right. um, everything else is, is gravy and it's about prioritization versus, you know, trying to be average at too many things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I've struggled with that in the past, right? It's like, do you want to be doing a lot of different things and you kind of like don't feel like doing you're okay. succeeding yeah. at any single one of them? Yeah. Um, that's where I've looked to Lauren, honestly, a lot and like, you know, look at her as a role model and say, you know, okay, how is, how is she like slicing and dicing her time? Because it's, it's easy to, I think, um, 
you know, the, the type A in us, right? right. Like, want to be good at everything, right? Yeah. But, but also, you know, that that can be your downfall sometimes right. too. And so, so I think she buckets yeah. it really well. And the name of her podcast with her husband Jesse mm-hmm. is Work Play Love. And yeah. <laughs> those are the buckets that matter most. Totally. And that's where they spend their time. Yeah. Um, so I think that's super cool. Okay, so now back to running. Um, <laughs> one of your athletes who's also running the trials, Amanda Nurse, wants to know. Uh, oh, Amanda asked a question. <laughs> what are your predictions for the marathon trials? And are you going to include yourself in this prediction? <laughs> oh, who's making question. the team? Good question. <laughs> oh, I mean, this year more than any year, so many women could make the team. And... I think that's twofold. One, because women's running is just like on fire right now. And I definitely want to talk about that next. Okay. All right. So put it, um, let's put a pin in that for now. Okay. But, you know, I, I think the big wild card is going to be the course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've I've run a fair number of miles with Molly and Emily. And, you know, I, I, I ran for Ray Tracy at, uh, in the past. And, you know, Ray gets people ready to go. And Molly and Emily just, you know, they, they show up. And I mean, how many titles does Molly have and (laughs) you know the marathon Emily was made for it so I I feel like you know putting those two on the list um you know I I would I I think they're going to be in the mix and I gotta say Sarah Hall um I think Sarah Sarah's another person I really look up to I think she is just totally running with joy these days and you see it and She's figured out this balance piece, right, right, with her family and her own running and her marriage and, you know, the focus on her career right now. I just, yeah, I would love for Sarah to make the I, team. <laughs> I love what she's doing. Yeah. I, normally, I don't like serial racing <laughs> or or people who um, promote it, but the way that she's doing it is fascinating. She's... And it's all about fun for Yeah, her. it's all about fun. She's yeah. like, this is fun and totally. I feel good. So I had her on the podcast when I was out in Flagstaff yeah, yeah. and she she was so happy. And, right? and She's living her joy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just like happiness and it, these subjective measures of success, I think, are huge. Um, and that's how I, you get the most out of yourself. Yeah, like, I call that's it, why I think she's dangerous. Yeah, man. <laughs> I call it the stoke meter. And if your stoke meter is, is all the way up, yeah. You're in for a good day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to see Sarah do some pretty cool things. So yeah. you didn't mention any Nike athletes, which I find interesting. The There's a lot going on in the running world when it comes to shoes. And yeah. I have not stopped talking about shoes in the last, These two, damn shoes. In the last two weeks. <laughs> These damn shoes, right. Um, I did an interview with uh, Cindy Kuzma from I love Cindy. Uh, Runner's World. Yeah. And she's doing an article about the downside of the shoes. Yeah. And I think that we're in for a rude awakening mm-hmm. in the next few months or years yeah. because a lot of people are not responding well to these shoes, myself included. I think I'm injured partly because of these shoes and the way that they um, return energy mm-hmm. into potentially the wrong places. It's uh, like going from like when the barefoot movement was a thing and it's like, okay, well, we all grew up wearing these regular running right. shoes. You can't just go run barefoot. Right. <laughs> You've been trained for years, you know, right. in one It's the pendulum. We went too far one way and now we're too far the other way. Right. And a bunch of people are going to get injured over here. And a bunch of people are going to get injured over here. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to settle back in the middle. I mean, the injury piece, I think, is certainly important. But, I mean, more from, like, 
like an even playing field piece. Um, you know, I was really disappointed to see that the alpha flies were approved mm -hmm. and it feels very convenient that they used a men's eight and a half to measure the stack height that conveniently was under the 40 right. millimeter, you know, by a half a millimeter. Yeah. I don't know how many men wear an eight and a half. Like I worked I do, at a running store. All right, <laughs> very, all right. very few. But we didn't stock a lot when I worked in a running store. It was like men's size 10, right. like your average size. Right. So why are we measuring the men's eight and a half? Right. Um, you know, I, I look at it as like the, the, the swimsuits and swimming however many years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I don't want to, you know, stop any innovation. I think innovation is great. I think that, you know, we're not running in the shoes that Roger Bannister wore, right? right. But I do think um, I want to step on the starting line and have it be about who's the fittest person here mm -hmm. who's prepared for this course in Atlanta, not do you have, you know, extra stuff under your feet and right. an alpha fly. So um, who knows? You know, I, I I didn't not mention Nike athletes because of the shoes. Right. I mean, I think, you know, Jordan and Amy have both struggled with injuries and, you know, as a fellow person having dealt with injuries, I, I can empathize with where they right. are. Um, so Amy did win a half marathon today. I did see that. Yeah. I did see that. Um, so, and yeah, so who knows? I mean, I, I didn't mention Des and like right. Des is obviously super fit. So it's talk it's, about enjoying the process and enjoying the journey. <laughs> yeah. She's doing it right. Totally. Totally. So I think anyone who's really like living their joy out on the race course, not doing what I did in LA in 2016. Um, those are the people who are going to be dangerous. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, my hope is for all 500 women of us out there that we can just like have the most joyful expression of this journey, um, over those 26.2 miles. So 500 women, that's almost twice as many as the number that qualified for LA, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's almost twice as many men that are racing. The men got to step up. <laughs> so what's going on with women's running? I think Lindsay Krause said it best in her New York Times article. I cried when I read that because I was like, oh, this is everything I believe her, about she running. She does amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. Lindsay is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I, I really think it's like women supporting women and people seeing something that their training partner that their friend that someone on Instagram is doing and saying, why not me? Yeah. I mean, that's literally how I got into the sport. My PR out of college was 3401 in the 10K. And I was like, I want to be a professional runner. I mean, to any 3401 runners out there, you know, go for it. Yeah. But at the time it was maybe like a little bit foolish. And to now like, you're 32? Uh, 3155. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at the time, I just, I, I like took a bet on myself yeah. because I watched the Olympic trials in 2008 and I watched the 10K and I said, wait, I think I can do that. And I was so inspired by the women on the track. And then, you know, here I am 12 years later. And I think the same thing has just happened um, with a, with a ripple effect. And I don't know why it's not happening with the men as much. Um, I think the women, we see a lot of women in that like 30 to 40 age group who are coming back to the sport after kids yeah. and you know, finding their, their power, um, a little bit later in their running career. And I don't think we see as many men in that age group, like you, chasing that dream. Do you think it's, it's because of the aspirational factor? Like you look at someone who's doing it and you think I can do it too. And I think there are a lot more women that are more vocal and, hmm. you know, Instagram 
or Twitter. Or, like, yeah. there are a lot more women that are active and and setting. Set, I don't want to say setting the tone, but like showing that it's possible. And then you get mm-hmm. a guy like Peter Bromka mm-hmm. or um or Tommy Riv, uh, yeah, yeah, Tommy Puzzy, uh, Ribs Puzzy. Um, but then I can't think of any other examples of people that have put themselves out there and mm-hmm. and people, I mean, men who have put themselves right. out there and to try and get that 219. Do you think yeah. that the, the relatability factor is, is a part of it? Totally. And, and, and I think, um, yeah, the, like the social media piece is, is big and maybe, you know, yeah, there are more women like kind of shouting it from the rooftops. Right. Um, like, Hey, it, you can do it too. Yeah. And, and I think it's like a really supportive environment. Like I've, I've raced CIM, I've cheered at CIM, like everybody wants everyone else. Right. It's like you're, you're immediately part of this team when you step on the starting line. And it, I know the men are experiencing that too. So I don't, I don't quite know. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I wish I knew, but it's awesome and we need more of it. <laughs> so you gave some, um, guesses on the women's side. What do you think on the yeah. men's side? Um, I really would love to see Jared Ward back out there. Yeah. I've gotten to become friends with Jared over the years. Um, we do this race every year um, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, the Bell and Run. Um, and I've gotten to hang out with him there. And like, he is just the real deal. You know, like Sarah, right? He's yeah. totally living his joy. And um, he's just sh- such a shining example of like hard work. And so I would just love for him to make the team. And he's been on fire. Um you know, I would love to see my brother make the team. My brother ran 211 in Chicago. Um, I think he's as fit as any other 211 guy out there. And, you know, behind Jared, um, I think there's there's some spots to be had. I know Galen just had a nice race this weekend. Um, I have some thoughts about Galen that I probably shouldn't say, <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. I hope he's not on the team. So go go all those two eleven guys. <laughs> what do you think about? Um, do you follow Jim Walmsley at all? I, not on Strava, but I, I know Jim's been throwing down. Yeah. I think I see it from my Twitter feed from you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a couple hundred and seventy five mile weeks. And talk about balance. I don't know about <laughs> balance there, Jim. But so he, there was a Sports Illustrated article that Chris Chavez wrote that mm-hmm. came out yesterday. Oh, and, I'm read that. Um, He's just a he's just a dude that loves beer and pizza and running a ton of miles. Good for him. That sounds like loving ice cream. Loves yeah, beer and pizza. exactly. Sure, sure. But I think I think he could be. Uh, it could be interesting. True. I mean, that's that's why I'm like so excited for Atlanta. Right. Like I could have said three names and they could make the team. Right. You could have said three different names right. and, and they, they could make the equally team. could make the team. I think the course will will eat a few people. That course is hard. <laughs> Oh my God! I so, did the preview. Yeah, you did the preview. So yeah. where where do you suggest spectating from? I mean, anywhere on Peachtree, like you'll be able to see us like yeah. six times. But it, everything's going to happen in that last five k. The loop that we don't repeat on—that's right. only the the final stretch down um, Hank Aaron. I don't know the name of it, but it's when we go into the Olympic rings yep. and and make our way back. Um, when I did the preview. That was so hard. I was like, I feel like I'm going to have to like walk up these hills. <laughs> and we were only running eight miles yeah, in the yeah. preview. Um, it's it's going to be really tough. So whoever is, you know, really ready for those hills, then, um, yeah, 
I, I would go position yourself in that last 5K. <laughs> so that's what we were thinking. Um, we have a house rented down there. Nice. And it's, um, it's like a quarter mile from that the Hank Aaron Okay. Uh, the straight road, shot down drive, to the yeah, down the and, rings and back up. Yeah. Um maybe we'll maybe we'll have to turn around but it would be so fun to see six people are going to be times. suffering down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably me too, yes. all of us. <laughs> so something you mentioned earlier I wanted to come back to. Yeah. Um before we started talking you were talking about, you know, pros hiding their training or whatnot. <laughs> um a question from Instagram was how do you approach training without injury or pressure to hit higher mileage weeks when other pros are so public with their workouts? Maybe I should be the pro who's public about my lower mileage <laughs> because yeah, I think there's a lot of loud voices on social media on Strava, you know, gym for running these 175 yeah. mile weeks. Um, one was 176. That's I mean, kudos to him. I, I would be broken uh, about a hundred miles before that. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's so many different ways to be a successful marathoner and what works for me might not work for you. You know, when I am coaching people, every single plan looks different. Probably not the best business model, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but great for coaching, right. I think. Um, great for results. Right. Because, you know, if I were to do Kellen Taylor's training, probably wouldn't work for me. I probably would be injured. I know, especially coming back from an injury, I'm on way lower, lower volume than I was in past marathon buildups, but I'm crushing it on the bike and in the pool and hitting workouts like better than I ever have. And so I think it's, it's so easy to say, Oh, well, John's doing this and John just kicked butt at this race. Well, I want to do what John's right. doing. Um, and it's easy to fall into that. So I think really just, you know, if you're working with a coach, trust your coach, um, and if, if you're not like, just really trust your body. And that's, that sounds so simple. It's, I think it's a really hard thing to do is really have faith in your training and have the, um, have the self-awareness of your body to know when to take a rest day and be okay with it. Um, I think it's another Lauren Fleshman ism, but you know, she was saying it, you know, it takes, takes guts to rest yeah. when everyone around you is just working, working, working. Right. But I've really found like less is more. And I'm, you know, maybe I'll make my training public someday. I don't know. <laughs> but um, Are you on Strava? Yeah. I share probably half my training on Strava. Yeah. Got it. So why do you choose not to? Originally, a, a coach had asked me not to just, you know, kind of out of respect for, you know, the, the training he was giving, you mm -hmm. know, don't give away training secrets on there. Um, so it was kind of out of respect for him. Um, and... Yeah, I think, you know, you, you want to keep something private from your competitors, right? I don't need everyone, all the people <laughs> I'm racing in Atlanta to know exactly what yeah. I've done. <laughs> Hill workouts every other day. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, what are you afraid of? That's a good question. Um, well, the, the, the public health person in me is really scared of the coronavirus right now. <laughs> no, I... Uh, I, I'm a super germaphobe, so I, I am in these three weeks counting yeah. down, scared of any sort of more the the flu, domestic flu, right. not coronavirus. But what am I afraid of? So no of? public transportation for you. A lot of hand sanitizer. <laughs> no, I, I think I'm afraid of not seizing opportunities in front of me, and whether that's in running, that's in my career, that's in you know my, my personal life. I just want to, I. I want to take all those chances and, and grasp all those opportunities. And I'm scared of not 
doing that sometimes, you know, if I, if I, if I don't make the most of the opportunity in Atlanta, I think I will have regrets and, and that scares me. What so. does success look like in Atlanta? Success in Atlanta is exactly what we're talking about. Grasping that opportunity in front of me and, and knowing that I left every little bit of myself out there and, um, yeah. And, and that doesn't really matter what the time or the place is. I know like I had a really crappy run in New York, um, ran the back half about the pace I do recovery runs <laughs> <laughs> really struggled, but I am so proud of that performance because I really did like seize that moment, even though the moment was terrible, right. you know, I, I like squeezed every bit out of myself. And so even though that's like my slowest marathon, I'm really proud of that. So, so. I feel the same way. I ran, um, I was trying to break three and I ran a four Oh one at Boston 2017. Yeah. And I'm, I think that's one of the runs I'm most proud of mm-hmm. because it would be so easy to give up. But right. once you give up once, it's <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. So being able to persevere through mm-hmm. something like that is so powerful. Does that fear come from a place of uh, like, has that happened before where you had a you know awesome opportunity that you let go? Or is it, is that just sort of a, um, I don't want to let this happen. I mean, I, I kind of feel that way about my, my run in LA, yeah. um, in 2016, but I think also like I just turned 33, I'm not getting any younger. Um, obviously, you know, Des and Shalane are having their best performances older than I am. Right. So there's, there's more in the future for me, but, but I think with, um, with the injury I had and, you know, just not knowing how many more years I'm going to have the chance to do this. Like that scares me. Like to know that I'm in the shape of my life and to not capitalize on that. Yeah. That's scary, right? It's a good motivator too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I think it's a good balance of like appreciation of what you have and yes. willingness to get after it. Yeah. Hard. Totally. Um so what are you doing after the trials? We are flying to Croatia. That's actually. awesome. Yeah. So um yeah, right from Atlanta. Send my sweaty running clothes back with a friend. and <laughs> That's a good airport to fly internationally out of, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, my husband, with his work schedule, um, you know, just we can't always take vacation when we want to. And we know the week after a marathon, usually I'm not doing too much running. Right. Although I really want to because running in Croatia looks amazing. So, um, yeah, so we're just going to go kind of nerd out on the, the Game of Thrones uh, sites. Nice. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited. Do you have any athletes racing besides Amanda? In the trials, no. Um, I had a few who were, you know, coming up close, chasing that 245, yeah. totally part of that, you know, group of women running down big dreams. Um, but yeah, Amanda is the only athlete I'm coaching who's running the trials. Got but it. It's going to be fun to like toe the line with her and, uh, you know, just, I, she is just like ready to roll right now. I'm really excited for what I she's going to do. She's in a place of gratitude also right now. Totally. And, We've and talked seizing a lot a about moment. that. Yeah. Yeah. So another question I have at the intersection of the public health and running, mm-hmm. let's talk Mary Kane and everything she brought forward. Yeah. Um, where do we go from here? I, we, we got to go somewhere. There was yeah. just an article today about a really similar, you know, tragic athlete. story in Canada. Yeah. yeah. And 
I and, and I think there's more stories that just haven't been told here in the US. And I, I think that the challenge really comes from these power dynamics of these male coaches, older male coaches in positions of power, whether they're controlling scholarship dollars or, you know, Nike contract dollars or or whatnot. They're wielding this power with, with these young girls. They really are girls at this right. age. And and um because they are in such an unequal power dynamic, they they can't advocate for what they need. And they're often advocate or acting out of out of fear. And so I think having more women coaches, but I don't think just women coaches is, is the right example. Like right. I've had many stellar male coaches that are you Yeah, know. I think that's an easy answer. <laughs> right. That's probably it's, not it. Yeah. I, I mean I think more women just should be coaching, period. Not yeah. because of everything that happened or in to Mary. Positions of power. Yes. Um and, and just, you know, so other women look up to that as right. as a career you could aspire to. Right. Um, but I think, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about, like with, with balance, I think it sounds like Alberto's stance is like a win at all cost. um, you know, at the detriment of your physical and mental health, which and works for 18 months. If, if that, <laughs> if that, yeah. But then you're yeah. destroyed. Right. And, and, and you've taken all the joy out of right. running forever. Right. Um, I'm really glad to see Mary back racing again, Yeah, but but, you know, I, I wonder if Mary had had like a regular college career where she was in the NCAA, she had teammates who were her age, hopefully she'd go to a party and have some <laughs> beer after a race, you know, live a little. Yeah. Um, not saying the NCAA system is perfect. There's these predatory coaches there, too. Right. But um, I think just starting to have the conversation and people a lot smarter than I am coming up with some solutions here. But um yeah, I, I think just starting to have the conversation is step one, and then having our governing bodies really intervene too. With with the Canadian piece, I was really disappointed to hear how Athletics Canada did not pursue these right. allegations. So holding people accountable, um, yeah, yeah, I think awareness is an easy first step, but it's but it's only the first step, right? It's <laughs> only the first step, and it's education and. As you said, the top of the food chain versus the individual cases, whether it's. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when like we have to look at, you know, follow the money, right? right. Like for some of these college coaches, they're incentivized to focus to on the four years that their athlete is with them. Right. A win at all costs attitude. And if they flake out from there. Right. They're not looking at their longevity. And so are we changing the financial incentives such that it's not about winning NCAAs for this coach? Maybe. I think Lauren Flesher mentioned this, but like a metric is how many of your women are running post-college in five years. I know for my dad as a high school coach, you know, there's no money there in high school, <laughs> but you do it for the love of it. But like, like really... a bonus structure for how many, how many athletes graduate and continue running. That's... I mean, that's a marker of a healthy, yeah. happy athlete, hopefully. But like for my dad, that's a really important metric for him is like mm -hmm. how many of his athletes, whether we're running in college or you're joining the triathlon team or you're just running for health and fitness, right. like that's the marker of success for him. Even, you know, 15 years later, he has athletes come back. The, and the problem is aligning the, the, a goal like that with dollars, dollars totally. and it's crude, but at the end of the day, that's, that's what's going to make change. Right. I mean, that's, that's just part of it. You know, I think, I think the education piece too, but 
people can fall asleep in webinars. People can, you know, check the box and say they did this training. Yeah, but I think I think the I think the education around energy deficit and eating and nutrition and vitamin D and bone health and things like that. Like, I I think there's massive under awareness. Is that a word? Lack of knowledge, lack of awareness around these things that are so crucial. Like we look at, we look at vitamin D with Inside Tracker and for bone health, for bone health, 35% of our users are clinically deficient. I've been low. Yeah. Yeah. And it puts you at, I think, I think the the statistic for energy deficit is you're five times more likely to get a bone Bone injury. injury. Totally. I don't know what the, the number is for vitamin D deficiency, but Mm -hmm. There was a study done by the Pittsburgh Steelers, so totally different sport, but <laughs> it looked at athletes with a vitamin D deficiency and 80% of the athletes on the injured reserve, and I think I'm getting this right. I'll double check it and put in put Show in the notes. notes on this one um, <laughs> because I need to get this one right. It was something, 80 or 90% of, of the athletes that missed time in this season, I think it was 2016, mm-hmm. had a vitamin D deficiency. And it's not a direct correlation, correlation or correlation whatnot, but, but I think it's it's definitely... Um, worth for further probing. Exactly. And and the number of people that know their vitamin D level, probably pretty low. Um, so I think that there's so much awareness, just awareness that needs to be done and you look at Kara Goucher and you look at Lauren Fleshman mm-hmm. and they have these these loud voices and they're shouting from the rooftops and it's finally starting to have an impact. And I think it's awesome. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I've had conversations with some of my athletes about this. Um, I will say, I think, I think sometimes like, you know, my college experience, you know, we, we were talking about diet. We had a yeah. World renowned researcher um, on nutrition who is speaking with all the student athletes. So I think some some teams and some schools are doing it well, but I think there's still it's it's a scary thing to right. talk about. It's a hard thing to talk about. So even if the knowledge is there, right, the way to have an understanding conversation is still difficult. And and the resources around making changes are yeah. probably not not there. Again, go back to the dollars. Yeah. So. Um, I, I was on a, a panel speaking to high school and college coaches this summer and I got a lot of questions about, okay, we, we, we know some of this research. We know this is important. We know our, our athletes, men and women are at risk, right. um, for disordered eating. What can I do as a coach? And that was what they were asking for. How do I have these right. hard conversations? And I don't know, pretend to know the answer. I could just share from my personal right. experience, but again, it's like, Going back to coming at it from a place of empathy, it's it's not about how fast you're running and right. how much you weigh. It's you know going back to how can I support you to get the most out of yourself, seize right. those opportunities in front of you, and get the stoke meter up. Yes, totally, totally. Um, so yeah, having some compassion. When I hear these stories, it sounds like those coaches did not have a lot of compassion for the whole human. Right. It was all about the medals, all about the times, and that. Sucks out all the joy, all the stoke. <laughs> yeah. So let's end on a, on a happy note here. Yeah, sorry. What is <laughs> your mantra for for Atlanta? Ooh, I'm going to have a ton. I like to have different ones for different miles. Yeah. Um, one of them, I had this on my bottle, taped on my bottle in New York, um, is Moose Miles. 
So Moose is my dog, dog yeah. and he's not a great runner, <laughs> but much to my chagrin, um, but he loves it. Yeah. When we do run all of like two miles, tongue out, he's smiling, he loves it, and he gets lots of t- treats when he's done. So Same. Uh, right. <laughs> Ice cream. Uh, so my my hope is just to kind of like embody his like That's awesome. pure fun of it. And like, I just want to have so much fun out in Atlanta. So Amazing. Yeah. Well. We'll see you out there, whether it's six times or just once at the last in the last five. I'm gonna need the cheer to be determined. Yeah. <laughs> so I had Lou Serafini on the podcast, and he said, "If you see me on the course, tell me to slow down. <laughs> if we see you on the course, what should we tell you?" Moose Miles. Moose Miles. All right. Yell it. <laughs> We're yelling Moose Miles at Caitlin. Well, thanks so much, and uh, and we'll see you out there. Thanks, John. For sure. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next week on For the Long Run. And in the meantime, happy trails. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too. Tune in next week for a special Olympic Trials preview episode with Aaron Stroud of Women's Running Magazine. I'll be releasing this on Thursday instead of Friday so that you can have an extra day to listen ahead of Saturday's Olympic Marathon Trials down in Atlanta. Enjoy.